Podcast. I'm Alan Cavana of Fox Sports, joined by David Smith of The Athletic. On this episode, a quick recap of the racing, fights, and owner insults at Martinsville, a great example of numbers lying to us, a deep dive into the future of the drivers at Kyle Busch Motorsports, and our Texas preview. But first, as always, this is episode 41 of Positive Progression. This is the Kurt Busch edition. David Kurt Busch, of course, a cup champion, winner of the first chase title way back in 2003 and late in his career, uh, you know, just like last year, <laughs> drove a good looking number 41 car and he won the Daytona 500 in it. Yeah. So from 2014 through 2018, Kurt Busch drove the 41 car ages 35 to 39. So it encompassed basically his entire uh, peak. He collected six victories during the span but the 2015 season in which he won twice was his most productive season according to production and equal equipment rating, a 2.697 rating that ranked sixth among all drivers. Uh, but honestly, Alan, for me, when it comes to all things Kurt Busch, you know where my heart lies. It's his restarts. He was a top seven restarter from both grooves in 2014, 2015, 2016, 2017, and 2018, he was the wow. only driver to accomplish this. Last year, NASCAR.com asked me to rank the sport's top restarters. He was my number one. Didn't have to think too hard about it. <laughs> the, the, the rules of restart physics seemingly did not apply to him. He earned a net gain across that span uh, in positions from the non-preferred groove when the norm is a massive net loss. The reason why is he was willing to rough up his surrounding competition through some elbows, right? He was a little NASCAR's version of Bill Lambeer, if you can mm -hmm. uh, remember back that far. old NBA In more player. ways than one, I bet. <laughs> I think so, yeah. Um, but you know what? That made just this random run-of-the-mill mid-race restart worth watching, right? I, I've got to watch these videos multiple times to gather the stats that I do. I'm glad that Kurt Busch was there during this time to make things a little bit interesting. Um, I've missed seeing that from him this year. We talked about the 20% drop in retention on restarts this season. It could be due to the lack of acceleration on restarts with this rules package. Could be due to him getting up there in age. But in his heyday... It was a lot of fun watching him perform his job. Yeah, Kurt Busch, Hall of Fame career. Uh, mercurial, I think you can use the term for when describing Kurt Busch over the years. Certainly had issues outside of the car at the racetrack and off. But uh, uh, certainly in terms of talent, David, uh, the reputation well-earned of a driver that always seemed to improve a situation when he showed up inside of a for a race team. You know what I mean? In terms of turning around and he's doing it right now with the one car in terms of what the production out of that one car was before to what he suddenly is able to bring to it. And that the restarts, like you said, and his other abilities seem to add to it. I'll point our listeners to an article that my colleague at The Athletic, Jordan Bianchi, wrote about Kurt Busch in his first year with Chip Ganassi Racing before they ever set foot at a racetrack. He greeted his uh, his team and his crew members at the shop. And he told them, we're going to win a race this year. And I, it, it seems commonplace for most drivers, but for this team, they hadn't won 
uh, in a number of years with Jamie McMurray. So they were taken aback by this a little bit, but he did fulfill the promise uh, in an epic late race showdown at Kentucky Speedway, um, a memorable win, probably one of the better races we've seen this year. And that was all thanks to how Kurt was able to navigate that late restart. Like I said, I mean, he is just, he's entertainment uh, for sure. Uh, I, I don't think there's ever really been a dull moment when watching him on the racetrack. Probably hasn't been many dull moments of him off the racetrack either, <laughs> but uh, that has been the Kurt Busch experience. And I think I'm all the better for it. Absolutely. Kurt Busch, hell of a career, still going. This is episode 41 of Positive Aggression, the Kurt Busch edition. All right, let's start with a review of a hell of a weekend in Martinsville, both on Saturday and Sunday. But we're going to focus right now on the Sunday Cup race because David Martin Truex, uh, I think you just have to say it was an ass whooping, right? I mean, led 450 plus laps uh, for the second time this year, we saw a real ass whooping at Martinsville. Uh, Truex really not a stranger to success there. I know he hasn't had the best, uh, short track record if you look, you know, of all time, you know, over the course of his career. But recently, you know, a couple of second place finishes got bumped out of the way by Logano. So I don't think it's a surprise to see him win there, especially with his short track prowess this year. Not a surprise, but what caught your eye about Truex's ability and his victory in Martinsville? Well, he had the fastest car in the race. Alan, I don't think that comes as a shock to you or anyone who saw that race. Uh, but his car ranked as the fastest in all four quarters of the race. There was no relenting. That is impressive. Alan, how about this for a number? Do you, do you care to guess the number of total pass encounters for Martin Truex last Sunday at Martinsville? Oh, geez. Um, less than five. I mean, he got the lead, you know, I don't know. There wasn't that long before the first caution. And then after that, he got out in the lead and then never had to pass anyone again. Right. In terms, at least for position. Uh, well, there was Larson. So I'll put it, I'll put it at six then. Oh, it was four. Oh, damn it. Okay. So <laughs> pass encounters are the total of passes and times passed. Uh, that number was by far the least of anyone in the race. For a frame of reference, William Byron finished this race second and had 41 encounters. Other than lap traffic, there wasn't much in the way for Truex. He just keeps rolling. He's locked into Homestead now, and I wrote this in our roundtable on The Athletic before the Martinsville race. He's the championship favorite for me, uh, given the strength of his team and especially the speed he's shown during these playoffs. Yeah, that speed is something you, you are really looking at because like you said, he has a 25% shot at the title right now. I mean, just numbers wise, uh, you could you know, clearly make arguments why he's the favorite, but you were looking at it from a different angle. In terms of that speed, is there a bit of history we may be seeing going on here with the 19 team, Cole Pern and Martin Truex Jr.? Yeah, there is. Uh, his average per race speed ranking is 5.57 during the playoffs. Kevin Harvick is actually tied with him for that. But Truex has had the fastest car in each playoff race on a non-drafting oval. Fancy way of saying we're omitting the Roval and Talladega here. If he has the fastest car in the remaining five races of that seven, and listeners can check my math on this, that gives him an average per race speed ranking of 1.0. You can't be better. The fastest teams in the playoff era 
were the same team, Jimmy Johnson's number 48 team in 2009 and 2013 with speed rankings on non-drafting ovals of 1.75 and 2.0 respectively. They did win the championships those years, but it should be said that this was before the knockout playoff format came to pass. But Alan, I think this is a pretty cool feat uh, that is within striking distance for Truex. Uh, and in case you're, you're wondering, with Talladega included, Jimmy Johnson's playoff long average rankings during those spans were 1.89 and 2.0, respectively. Um, pretty crazy. Just a reminder there of how good Jimmy Johnson and Chad Canals were at their zenith at every track. So, so much speed. But point taken, Truex is chasing one of the best to ever do it in his performance during these playoffs. Yeah, and just to reiterate, you take away the Roval, you take away Talladega, and you look at the rest of the playoff races, and the 19 has had the fastest car in every single race? Yeah, and that is, that is important and that these are races that translate to other oval races. So at Texas this weekend, I don't know how the favorite isn't Martin Truex. I know he didn't win there in the spring. I can't look past it. At Phoenix, I feel like the favorite is going to be Martin Truex. Same with Homestead, because that's the kind of car they're trotting out all playoffs long um, at these races that can feed off one another in different ways. But this team, so, so sharp right now, Truex and Cole Pern. I don't think Martinsville was much of a surprise. I mean, I there is a case that can be argued. He should have won there last fall when Joey Logano executed his bump and run. He's been strong on short tracks all season long. Finally broke through and got the win that he's been searching for for a while at uh, Martinsville. Yeah, and you mentioned his speed and just what the numbers show if you omit the, the Roval and Talladega. Now, with, when you include them, the numbers, if you look at a sheet of paper and you do the math, it will say he has the same speed as Kevin Harvick in the playoffs. Now, the layman like me will say, that seems crazy, David, because clearly there is separation between Martin Truex Jr. and Kevin Harvick, yet the numbers will show you that speed ranking-wise, they are tied for the playoffs. So what's lying to us or, or what what is skewing this perception versus reality? Because clearly Truex Jr. and Kevin Harvick are not performing on the same level in terms of the results. Right. The number is true. This is an instance in which the eye test makes us go back and just double check things. So that's why the omission is important um, look, w- with those two races omitted, Harvick's speed ranking drops to 7.2. That's still good. And despite ranking 11th in speed at both Kansas and Martinsville, I still kind of like him to make it through to Homestead. But really, the speed he had across the summer months, and keep in mind that portion of the schedule is conglomerated by the two-mile track type, uh, the Pocono, Michigan, and Indy, and that doesn't translate to the playoffs at all. On top of that, Harvick hasn't won since Indy. He had a stretch of races, uh, seven races, that saw him earn positive surplus passing values in those races, something we talked about earlier this year that was troubling him. He got off to a slow start just in regards to passing, maybe something a little bit to do with the arrow package, maybe something to do with his age. He was getting passes during the span where he had speed. It looked as if that had turned the corner, 
but again, it was on a part of the schedule where there were a lot of the two mile tracks. The streak has been snapped in the playoffs. Three of his five races on the non-drafting ovals saw days of negative surplus passing. Now, that is a small sample, to be sure, but it is an important sample suggesting that the bulletproof performance that is needed in the playoffs and certainly required to beat Martin Truex in this kind of form, it just isn't there. Kevin Harvick isn't down and out, but despite the equal speed number on paper, these teams are not of equal strength, not right now at least. No, and I think we saw that some of that, of course, in Martinsville, you know, Truex dominating, but uh, Harvick came, I think the best he ran all day was right at the end. You know, they made good adjustments at the end, certainly a resilient team, but not the speed or, or domination or just the strength, especially at the beginning of that race. It was a struggle and they, they came out the best at the end, which is what good teams do. But in terms of being able to compete, you know, at Martinsville, it's not Homestead, obviously, but uh, in terms of being able to compete with the the teams and call them a title contender. I don't know if, if he can do it right now, but so I don't know. So it surprises me when you say they could get to the homestead still. Yeah. And I mean, just take Martinsville, for instance, they got a finish better than what their speed indicated. And I think the framework is there. Like they're doing things that good teams do, except that it just doesn't matter because that's how good Martin Truex has been right now. So we're we're kind of ignoring some of the things that the four team is doing just just getting the results better than probably where they are in terms of strength and speed you know what if if Truex wasn't here we probably would be opening the episode talking about hmm. um how Kevin Harvick is uh, the team is is crafty and Rodney Childers are just doing what they usually do but as of right now there's just this big shadow over the playoffs and it's that 19 team interesting stuff all right, that was Sunday in Martinsville. Let's go back and look at what happened Saturday at Martinsville for the truck race, the truck playoff race. I was down there on pit road, a good race, fun race, kind of the complete opposite of what we saw Sunday because there was a lot of carnage. There was a lot of uh, just interesting stuff going on there at the track. I think every single playoff driver in the truck series playoff field had some sort of an issue. And then the win ultimately went to Todd Gilliland, his first win of his career in the truck series. David, I was down on pit road, like I said, and I had all three uh, KBM drivers, Kyle Busch Motorsports drivers. So this is an appropriate topic to talk about because I was covering all three of them throughout the race. And uh, always fun, just from a broadcaster's perspective, it's always fun to see a first-time winner. And this was uh, Todd Gilliland's first win after a long time of waiting. It was the longest tenured Kyle Busch Motorsports driver to uh, not have a win. And now Gilliland can cross himself off of that list. And with the victory came an immediate uh, celebration on the radio. And that celebration included a dig at owner Kyle Busch, where Todd Gilliland told Kyle Busch, again, this is over the public radio, <laughs> to uh, stay in your effing motor coach. Basically, don't come to victory lane. I don't want to see you. I don't want to be congratulated by you. David, that was the message. And what, just initially, what was your take on that when you heard that? Wow. Well, I'll speak to the win first. Um it was a good win. Uh, their KBM fielded the three entries. Where do you think Todd Gilliland's truck ranked among them in speed? Uh, I, I'm promising I do did not look this up for this answer. Uh, let's see. In terms of speed, I'm just trying to think back to that day. I mean, he really wasn't up there much, so I'm going to put him as around seventh. He ranked as the 10th fastest Ooh. truck in the race and the slowest among KBM's trio. All right. I believe so, that. So, yep. 
you know, coming home with a win, that's, that's pretty impressive. As for the comment, first of all, if he came up with stay in your motor coach off the cuff, that is brilliant. <laughs> if he were a professional wrestler, that quote would be on a t-shirt right now. <laughs> Look, without context, saying this is, uh, odd and lacks etiquette for your boss, that, okay, then that makes sense. However, we do have context oh, yeah. and the boss is the one who breached etiquette initially all the way back in the beginning of the year when Kyle Bush dedicated some time in uh, the, the press conferences at the tracks to airing their dirty laundry. We don't know what has been said behind closed doors, but there are enough context clues to guess it's probably not a good relationship. Alan, choose your f- favorite leader. Roger Penske, Greg Popovich, uh, Colin Powell. I don't know. <laughs> Take your pick. It, it, it's, it's probable that they don't criticize their players or employees or troops individually and in the public sphere. Behind closed doors, all bets are off. But airing grievances in public fosters distrust and frustration and sometimes hate and I think we saw a little bit of that here. What do you think? Uh, of course. And to be fair, you know, myself and others like uh, like me, uh, you know, journalists and reporters are asking Kyle Bush about this. But uh, and to be fair, Kyle Bush controls what he says. But yeah, it was quotes like, "If you want to be a star in the sport, you better perform in KBM stuff." And that's what that was a dig at Todd Gilliland, a uh, dig at Harrison Burton. You know, there was a time where he said his truck team was running at about a two out of a ten. And he was balancing a lot of that off of what he would do in the 51 truck. And he went out and dominated all the races. He went five for five. And then he would try to balance that with the struggles that the rest of his team and these young drivers were having. And he was very public about it. And uh, that forced us to ask questions to Todd and Harrison. Um, and so clearly, David, that lingered. And that was stuck in the back of his head. As you said, if he came up with that off the top of his head, telling Kyle Busch to stay in his motorhome, that's one thing. But you, you kind of get the feeling that maybe he's been working on this line for a long, long time, just waiting to use it. And he didn't have his jerk store moment. He just delivered and nailed it right at the appropriate time <laughs> when he crossed, when he got the checkered flag. You just wonder how long he's been, he had that one in the holster. I've been waiting for George Costanza to make an appearance <laughs> on this podcast. Um, no, I mean, you're right. I think the situation was already untenable. It probably wasn't ever getting rectified, which is unfortunate because Gilliland is a good driver. KBM has in the past proven it fields good trucks. On paper, this pairing should have worked, but human differences got in the way. Yeah, then let's talk about that because we we have addressed it a little bit on this podcast so far this year, you know, when addressing those struggles and those comments. But, I mean, what does Todd Gilliland do well? What aren't we seeing in terms of, you know, I think, you know, KBM has the reputation of win, 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 fast trucks, fast trucks, fast trucks. Todd Gilliland is the one who's not performing. What should we do? Is that notion correct? What should we be looking at when we look at his talent? I don't think it's true that he's not performing. He ranks 10th in peer with a rating of 2.333, and at 19 years old, he is the youngest driver in the Truck Series Top 10 by three years. His surplus passing value is about even, 
Uh, his first three races on non-drafting ovals this season saw him earn negative passing values for those races. No surprise that Kyle Busch's initial comments came during that stretch. But since then, it's a span of 14 races on non-drafting ovals. 11 of the 14 were positive passing outings for Gilliland. Now, the number four truck is the slowest of KBM's three full-time entries. Uh, 10th overall, he's finished better than 10th a total of 12 times this year in 21 races. In 2018, I ranked him second in my annual top prospects list, trailing only William Byron. This year, I dropped him. I ranked him fifth. My liking of him stems from his days at the K&N Pro Series level. He ranked first in Pier in 2016 in the K&N East and second in 2017. And in both seasons, he was not gratuitously aggressive, but he was the right brand of aggressive. He was a heat-seeking missile of a driver in that series, enough so to make you stand up and take notice. But we haven't seen that driver, not at the truck series level. We're watching a good driver who quietly goes about his business and often gets criticized for how he's doing it. And that is a major stylistic difference from the driver I first watched in late models and in K&N. That is a weird transformation to make at this age. There are plenty of folks who watch truck series races without having seen him at the K&N level, and they don't understand the hype around him. Well, I do, and I'm not ready to believe that his A-game just disappeared. Perhaps there's something else going on. I'm sure that the situation he's in is not helping. Uh, from the outside looking in, I, I I don't know that KBM provided him a good opportunity. He's competed in only 46 races, but he's had six different crew chiefs in the truck series. For the purposes of development, that lack of continuity is not ideal. He's a good driver. I just hope this misfire of a tenure at KBM doesn't have long-term ramifications for the rest of his career. All right. And um, look, no plan as of yet for next year. Uh, his father is part owner in another successful truck team. Uh, common sense may say he could go over there. I don't know. But what do you think the future holds for Todd Gilliland? Yeah, I think a move to DGR Crosley uh, for 2020 would make sense, right? They'll certainly have his best interests at heart. Uh, I think the freedom will help matters. A driver with a better headspace who's hearing positive things in his ear is probably a good thing. But, and he'll be only 20 next year. That's still remarkably young. He can prove to, again, be an elite prospect more than just someone who's simply considered elite. Statistically and realistically, it's more than likely he'll blossom into a driver worthy of Cup Series consideration. The problem that is ahead is the one of perception. We've talked about this in mm -hmm. recent weeks. Will Cup teams write him off because relative to Eric Jones and William Byron and Christopher Bell, who came before him at KBM and who in turn spoiled the entire industry, um, just in relation to them, he failed. I have no idea how or why team decision makers view drivers in certain ways, but I can tell you that if he hits statistically, as I expect him to, 
well, we have a podcast that can bring uh, his effort to light and uh, maybe cut a hole into some of that perception uh, chasm. But I still think there are good days ahead for Todd Gilliland. All right. And we'll move on because we're, ta- we're tackling all of KBM. And uh, it's interesting you bring up perception because now let's talk about Harrison Burton, who also is looking for still his first win in Kyle Busch Motorsports equipment. Nearly had it in Martinsville, but ended up uh, third on that last lap and, and spinning, almost uh, helping Todd Gilliland get the win with a little contact to Ross Chastain. Uh, look at the season's effort. He is ranked 14th in peer, the production equal equipment rating. Yes, if you were just paying attention a few minutes ago, that is below Todd Gilliland. He is also not one, as like I said, Harrison Burton in, in KBM equipment. But it seems like he's avoided some of the, the shrapnel that Todd has got, but now Burton is also getting an Xfinity series ride. Um, how do you tear it? Not tear down. How do you break down his season and put a microscope on it for Harrison Burton? Yeah, you made great points. I mean, you wonder if the pressure now falls on Harrison Burton to get a win in a KBM truck. Look, there was some head scratching when it was announced a driver who couldn't get KBM to the playoffs was now getting a promotion to Joe Gibbs racing in the Xfinity series. But here we are. Um, you know, it, look, Harrison Burton's reputation precedes him. Uh, he won a lot in late models. I think he had some equipment that most young late model drivers would never be privy to. But as it pertains to trucks, his truck ranks ninth in central speed, not that much faster than uh, Gilliland's trucks. It's almost as if the trucks aren't fast when Kyle Busch isn't driving them, Alan. That's kind of funny. I don't know that I care for his poor pass efficiency, which is at a negative 3.53% surplus passing value. His truck was expected to turn in a season-long pass differential of plus 62. So far, he's turned in a minus 99. So that's a disconnect. There's also a disconnect in his top 15 efficiency. It's at negative 17.8%. That is the biggest disparity among full-time drivers. By this theory, he should have scored 18 top 15 finishes in 21 races. He earned just 14. So underachievement is probably the best single word summary of his 2019 season because we can tell, uh, at least through the numbers, that he left some races on the table. And despite that, like you said, he has signed up for the Joe Gibbs 20 ride, uh, the very successful uh, Xfinity Series team up there for Joe Gibbs Racing. So given what we know of him, what does his 2020 look out for you? You know, not unlike what he did in trucks, he's going to step into a situation where he is following Eric Jones and Christopher Bell into a ride. And this is probably unfairly going to handicap his perception. The expectation of Burton's performance is going to be set based on what Jones and Bell did, and and he's just not at their level. That's reality. He's had seven races in JGR equipment this season in the Xfinity Series. His seven-race sample ranks 51st among 51 drivers Hmm. in peer. His per-race crash rate is 0.57 or uh, more than once every two races. His surplus passing was actually a positive this time around, a plus 1.87% SPV, but overall, not good performance turned in by him. Uh, but still, he will inherit the fastest car in the series from Chris Bell. And we saw at Kansas, JGR is so strong that they can get Brandon Jones to victory lane. So I think it's more than possible a driver with Burton's record wins a race or two in that equipment next season. 
but the lofty expectations you're going to hear of him from uh, uh, other sources, these might not be realistic. He's still rounding into form as a prospect, whereas the drivers, Jones and Bell, who came before him, were rounding into form as potential cup drivers. And that's a big difference. This isn't going to be a, a complete driver getting into a Joe Gibbs Xfinity car next season. He's got some stuff to work on. All right. As do, uh, do all of the KBM drivers apparently this year, because the last one up we're going to uh, look at is Christian Eckes, who has been in seven races this year in KBM equipment in that 51 truck, that one that Kyle Busch has put into victory lane. He put it in five times, I think, uh, at another one for Greg Biffle. So the 51 truck led by Rudy Fugel, uh, quite the quality ride. And Christian Eckes has had seven races in there. Three of those finishes have been top six finishes, uh, three finishes outside the top 15, 64 laps led, uh, David. But when you look at his peer numbers, it is not good. His peer ranking, his performance and equal equipment rating, which kind of, which you have developed to kind of separate the driver from his equipment, he ranks really low. Let's dig into Christian Eckes a little bit. Yeah, so in the truck series, it has been uh, an up and down season. He he has plenty of speed. He can keep a fast truck fast. He's he has the poles. The crash rate, Allen zero point eight six. That narrowly trails Natalie Decker and Cody Rohrbaugh as the highest in the series. Uh, and as of right now, he's the second least efficient passer in the series, a negative 8.67% SPV, trailing only Jesse Owuji in that regard. But uh, I think more of the positives as they pertain to Eckes uh, were seen in the ARCA series. He did the job that was asked of him this year as a full-time ARCA driver within the Toyota development program, which was to win the series championship. He did that despite missing one race due to illness, and ARCA does not have a playoff format, so he did it the old-fashioned way. Four wins, uh, 17 of 19 races finished inside the top 10. It was the first driver's championship for Venturini Motorsports since Big Bill Venturini won it himself in 1991. Hmm. How about that? Uh, Eckes ranked fourth in ARCA Series Pier, trailing only Ty Majeski, Chandler Smith, and Corey Heim. Corey Heim, by the way, a 16-year-old who isn't in top-tier equipment, but very talented, a lot of fun, ripe for the picking for our scouting network. <laughs> Um, so, but, but for Eckes, some, some positive, uh, things to work on in the trucks, but positives in ARCA, including the, uh, the everlasting problem of combating the perception issue, because it's not clear to me where he ranks among Toyota's hierarchy of prospects, and they've got a lot of them, and most of them are good. Yeah, and if you believe some of the garage talk or just the, the prevailing winds, if you will, you would think Christian Eckes would be a fine fit for one of the openings at KBM in 2020 for that truck ride. Um, and another one of their prospects, I mean, he won't be old enough to fill that ride, who we talk about a lot, is Chandler Smith. So do you envision this? I mean, a lot of people are going to compare the prospects, especially in the Toyota camp. So is the perception of Ekes' ability, is that skewed at all, knowing what Chandler Smith is either done or capable of? Or how do you compare or contrast those two? How do they affect each other? Uh, the worst thing to happen to Ekes' ARCA effort is Chandler Smith. <laughs> I think that that should be said. Like, here, here's a driver a year and a half younger who wins more often and is more productive and crashes far less in the same equipment. It's probably not fair for Eckes, who can still craft a career 
for himself, but it stands to reason how his prospect stock can take a hit when there is a direct comparison in near identical equipment and you don't need peer to see it. I think this is going to be a big part of his 2020 season. If that does graduate to KBM full-time in trucks, um, uh, you know, the goal there then is to add more tallies to his pros column because it's expected Chandler Smith will again compete in a limited number of truck races next season. So the comparisons will inevitably continue. It shouldn't be something that affects the career of Christian Eckes, though. We don't often see prospects as good as Chandler Smith, but Eckes is fine in his own right. He has a chance to make it to the Cup Series, and writing him off because he isn't Chandler Smith is a classic case of a driver falling through the cracks for the wrong reason. So we need to be diligent about treating Eckes as the driver he is, as opposed to the one he isn't, because he is accomplishing some good when he goes out on the racetrack. Interesting stuff. We know a lot of changes are coming to Kyle Busch Motorsports next year. One thing that won't change, the owner, Kyle Busch, um, and his, uh, you would have to expect, lofty expectations. So it will be interesting. All right, we've covered Martinsville, covered Cup, covered Trucks. Let's move on to Texas, because all of the Stuff we saw coming out of Martinsville, the fighting, the performance from Martin Truex Jr., the points shake up, all that, that all starts again at Texas. So let's go back to Texas in spring because that David, um, maybe one of the championship favorites, Denny Hamlin, was the winner there in the spring. He led 45 laps, uh, making the final pass for the lead with 12 laps to go. When you look back on it, what stood out about Denny Hamlin's win and how he did it? He had the fourth fastest car at Texas this spring, but speed was not what defined that victory. Uh, he had a pit road speeding penalty on lap 64 that dropped him from fifth place to 19th. And he had another penalty, not speeding, on lap 173. And, and both of the penalties put them in a severe track position deficit. But crew chief Chris Gabehart jumped Hamlin 11 positions on the final three green flag pit stops, including a move from second to first on what was a creative splash and go stop on the last cycle. I believe this weekend's race will cater to the strategy we saw from them and the the kind that we've seen all year on the 1.5 mile tracks. That's four tires under yellow, two or less under green. It still seems weird to say that. It feels backwards in most respects compared to the years preceding this one, but it's there for the taking. It's literally how the previous race at this track was won. And this weekend, the winner can win the race and punch a ticket to Homestead. So there is more to entice a well-executed race. All right. Execution will be important, of course, uh, when you look back at the, the spring race and how Denny Hamlin did it. Uh, also, when you look back at that Hendrick, or when you look back at at, uh, at the spring race, you, Hendrick stood out to you. And I look at the numbers, David. Uh, Jimmy Johnson led 60 laps in the race. William Byron led 15. Chase Elliott led 35 laps. Uh, all that's important, especially with Chase Elliott still being in contention and needing uh, to win to advance to Homestead after his trouble in Martinsville. So when you look back at the spring race, how much of that can benefit Chase Elliott this time around? 
you know, it, I don't know, it, maybe it comes full circle, but remember Jimmy Johnson at Martinsville in the spring? He was lapped within the first 10 minutes of the race, it seemed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe certainly before the first commercial. We talked about that after it happened, but he responded to that failure by winning the poll the next weekend in Texas. Oh, here we are again. A, a bad outing at Martinsville could be a good outing at Texas. That's good for Chase Elliott, right? Everything that could have gone wrong went wrong for Elliott last weekend. Uh, another first race hole for him. This happened last round, but the competition is even more stiff now. He talked at Martinsville in the media center about Texas, about how much he liked it. He got his first Xfinity series win there, but that was before major work was done to the racing surface. And he said, for whatever reason, they're still searching for something, a setup as impactful as the one that he had on the old surface. But you're right. For that point in the season, Hendrick's speed in that race at Texas, that was atypical. Elliott's car ranked as the fifth fastest in the race. Johnson's was the seventh fastest. So they had setups even then that proved competitive. But now just being competitive might not cut it given the situation Elliott finds himself. He needs something close to a winning setup with a strategy plan, a little like the one we just discussed. And Alan Gustafson is the kind of crew chief that can make up the deficit. And that is sort of what has to happen this weekend if he's going to dig himself out of this new hole that uh, his team has created. Uh, and also, so Hendrick was good and Denny Hamlin won. Uh, you looked at the restarts as you always do. Uh, again, I mean, I think this new package has kind of thrown some things for a loop in terms of what we should expect and having at least one data point of the spring race to look at. Uh, what do you see in terms of restarts, what we should expect this weekend in terms of the lane and what we're looking at? Okay. So, uh, things got a little bit weird, but I want to go over the basics first. The outside line is the preferred line at Texas. In the spring, the retention disparity was about 43 percentage points, 73.81% compared to 30.95%. So we know that. But what was unique to Texas was how a bad restart by someone near the front and in the inside line affected the entirety of that line. It happened early and we sung his praises earlier in this episode, but so here's the, here's the uh, journalistic balance. <laughs> Kurt Busch lost three spots when running second and that backed up Clint Boyer who lost four spots behind him. Eric Almarola lost two behind him and Austin Dillon who was behind Almarola also lost two. And then especially the last restart of the race came on lap 261 Almarola coughed this one up. He lost three positions when restarting second. Behind him was Chase Elliott, who lost four. Jimmy Johnson behind him lost four. Then on down the line, Clint Boyer lost four. Daniel Suarez lost three. Kurt Busch lost three. And Kevin Harvick lost three. It's not always true that a bad restart or restarter can affect an entire line. These guys in the Cup Series are especially adept at getting around the bad restarters. They have an awareness there. But at Texas, guys on the inside line seem trapped and at the mercy of those higher in the running order, more so than usual. 
So listeners, be on the lookout for that. Just one car killing an entire line dead. That is entirely possible this weekend at Texas. All the more reason to look up your restart numbers before you go into the race. That's available on motorsportsanalytics.com. <laughs> David, we always try to pick out something we uh, want to see or uh, what we expect maybe or what we hope to see anyway. Uh, what do you want to see in Texas this weekend? So this is a 500-mile race. It uh, It's going to be a long one. I hope you're refrigerator is stocked and your couch is comfortable folks uh long runs should populate this race and i'd like to see this race end on a long run if only because i think there will be fewer setups initially optimized for long runs uh mid-race gains in speed are hard to come by. I mean, the Penske guys are are great at it and i've i've uh, talked that up on this podcast uh, but for the most part, you just rarely see it. So if a long run came to be, that's how this race broke, it would be a race decided by a few who really risked everything before they even unloaded the car for the first practice. It'd be kind of cool if that was rewarded and it uh, threw some teams for a loop before having to make a similar decision in two weeks before Homestead. I want to see a race just like we saw in the spring in terms of, I always say it, David, the parody. If you look back, the the spring race saw six drivers lead 35 laps or more. Different players, different teams, different organizations. You said it, Denny Hamlin won with the fourth fastest car. There were different people at different times in line for that race. Obviously, Denny had two Pit road penalties. He was able to come back from those. Strategy played into it. So in terms of a Texas race for 500 miles, you can't ask for much more. I just hope we see something like that. And with the playoffs on the line, the aggression, you know, who doesn't like a late restart? Let's just hope you were paying attention a few minutes ago and no one screws up on the outside line and screws up your driver's performance. But David, that's what I want to see. The parody version. We saw some of it in the spring in terms of lap leaders. I just enjoy that. I feel you're going to uh, get your wishes on aggression if uh, if Martinsville was any indication. I know Martin Truex stunk up the show, but that was some hard driving by a lot of drivers that uh, may have found it difficult to pass. Uh, the big spoiler played a played a role in that, but the driving was uh, was on point, and uh, it was ultimately it was that it was just hard driving that led to uh, the scuffle that uh, seemed to make headlines. Uh, everywhere in the NASCAR world this week, we didn't talk about that on this podcast. But uh, and again, that wouldn't be that wouldn't be positive regression if we did. So really. I, I think a, a aggression. I think I think it would be a fine race. But I think we see plenty of aggression, and for maybe Alan Sakes and parody. I will say, like Martin Truex Jr. leading 450 laps at Martinsville. At least there's other stuff going on. I mean, we've seen Jimmy Johnson lead what you know 300 plus laps at a place at, at a place like Texas for three plus hours, and that's far worse than what Martin Truex did last week. So uh, I'd rather see a domination at Martinsville than uh, a place like Texas. That's just me. So hopefully, we do not see that this weekend. Another good episode of Positive Regression, episode 41. Do not forget, we are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and Luminary. Wherever you listen to your podcast, we are available. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or review. Those little things, that just that giving us a review or a rating, that really does help us 
gain some visibility, that, and just tell your friends, look, there's a lot of race fans out there. We know you're a race fan if you're listening to this right now, so your help in spreading the word is so appreciated. If you have any questions, we love to answer them right here on this podcast. Reach out to us on Twitter at PosRegPod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. David, always busy. I, we, it was cool. We saw each other in Martinsville. We don't often get to cross paths, surprisingly. Uh, what are you gonna, what are you working on this week? On the athletic this week, I'm looking into the four recently eliminated drivers from the playoffs to see how each might improve or regress in 2020. Uh, you mentioned I was at Martinsville. I used that time wisely. I spoke to none other than Jimmy Johnson. So I'm going to write up a piece about him, about how he feels things have changed uh, since they made a change at the crew chief position. And also uh, the cheat sheet returns for the Xfinity Series playoff race in Texas. That will be posted on motorsportsanalytics.com. Check all of those out if you are inclined. Good stuff. And let me tell you, David moves stealthily at, at when he's at the track. You see him once, and then you don't see him. Then he comes back, and he says, I just interviewed 65 people, including one of the best drivers in the world. You know what I mean? David moves stealthily, and, and we are all better off for it because he produces a lot of great work. So good stuff, David. Um, I don't have too much to plug this week. Just make sure you watch Race Up. Make sure you watch racing in general, and then we will we, we will be back uh, with the final two races of the Truck Series starting in Phoenix and, of course, home instead but uh sort of a light weekend for myself without the trucks but uh of course we'll be watching and make sure you watch race hub every night on fs1 at 6 p.m and just enjoy your weekend everybody so for david smith i'm alan cavana thank you for listening to positive regression enjoy your racing weekend Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.